All right, we've been talking about the doctrine of laying on of hands, which Paul says is an elementary doctrine that uh, uh, should be known, but we should press on to maturity. But uh, I've noted in previous um, episodes that it's not really a doctrine that's given much attention in certain um, traditions within the Christian church. It's given a lot in sacramental traditions, manifesting in the sacramental rite of confirmation. It's given a lot in Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, manifesting in the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and in evangelical traditions, uh, it's been my experience that it hasn't been given uh, as much attention, generally because I think the evangelical tradition tends to be less supernatural than what the Bible and history shows us. But um, that's a dig, but I love the evangelical uh, tradition, and um, you know everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. So we're going to go over, and all of all of this manifests in history, and this uh, laying on of hands, receiving the being strengthened by the Spirit manifests in history. And so I just want to kind of give a quick uh, overview of some of the thoughts of uh, some of the fathers throughout history. All right, Clement of Alexandria, in a section where he's talking about uh, modesty and specifically he's talking about hair, um, he makes this passing comment of women shouldn't, they, they shouldn't have, basically wear wigs, I think is what he's saying, because the presbyter puts their hands on them to bless them. And so you don't want to bless somebody else's hair. You want to actually bless the hair of the, the woman that you're blessing. Uh, he says, for on whom does the presbyter lay his hand? Whom does he bless? So this doesn't, uh, the, he's not talking about ordination. Um, he may not even be talking about the rite of confirmation as it's come to be known. It could just be um, kind of a generic blessing, but perhaps it could be um, this special reception of the Holy Spirit. Um, what's interesting is that he doesn't mention the bishop, although the bishop is a presbyter and those can be used interchangeably. Perhaps he's using them interchangeably, but he does say presbyter, so the elder. Um, that's interesting. He doesn't specify it's the bishop, it's the overseer. Tertullian, in his treatise on baptism, um, he says, in with Tertullian, I mean, he's early on, we have really what we see in kind of the Eastern Rite. He talks about after somebody being baptized, they receive the anointing of oil, and he connects the uh, administration of oil get, um, to the one who just been baptized. He connects that to the rite that the Aaronic priests had gone in. It's a kind of anointing ceremony. He says, in the next place, the hand is laid on us, invoking and inviting the Holy Spirit through uh, benediction. So uh, baptism, oil, and then the hands are placed on them um, and inviting the Holy Spirit through um, this benediction. I think this is great. I wouldn't have any problems with this. Um, I think it's great that um, Rome and the East do these uh, rites, and same thing with Lutherans or Anglo-Catholics or Anglicans. Although Anglicans, if you're not Anglo-Catholic, you're probably not going to be using oil, but that's been an in increased use in, in kind of Anglo-Catholic-minded circles, um, which we'll talk about later. But Tertullian's, he's the Latin father, right? So he's, he's a Western father, but he's describing baptism and chrismation here at the same time. Um, he also makes these other just great points of the, the laying on of hands. 
uh, in the reception of the Holy Spirit, he points to the example of Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, which we've talked about before, as this kind of sacramental benediction, even with Jacob doing it. And um, he makes a connection to the Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep that we see in Genesis. And then after the flood, we see uh, the the dove being sent out from the, from Noah's Ark. It's this new creation. And in baptism, you're this new creation. There's water, and then there's spirit, the receiving of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And the, and the flood is a type of baptism. Peter specifically tells us this. And, um, oh, and then also the baptism of Christ. Baptism of Christ, water baptism, and then you have the descending of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Um, so he's connecting all of these different rites, and it's all within the moment of, of baptism. So it's a much more elaborate baptismal ceremony. Um, Tertullian says that the bishop is the one that regularly administers baptism, but that presbyters and deacons can do it as well, and that it can also be done by laity. I, I, Rome holds this position. I'm assuming the East does. Um, though baptisms administered by the laity are, would be considered irregular, where deacons and priests and bishops are regular ministers of baptism. Uh, let's see here. He never says, yeah, he doesn't say that it can only be administered by the bishop. I mean, that's an argument from silence, but he doesn't go out of his way to tell us this. Um, and then, in fact, with, with baptism, he says, uh, what is equally received can be equally given. So it is more of this democratic priesthood of the plebes idea when he's saying this, which I'm highly sympathetic to. Even though we can have regular ministers of administration, I would say the laity are invested with the priesthood of Melchizedek, and um, they, they, would have these, uh, they would have that authority as well. Um, but all of that would be the context and whether the Holy Spirit had a real calling on somebody and all of that would, would factor into it. All right, Origen, uh, he just makes reference. He acknowledges the, the reception of the Holy Spirit uh, by the laying on of the apostles' hands. He says, in the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Spirit was given by the imposition of the apostles' hands in baptism. So he's connecting those two things as well. And he says, through the grace of the Spirit, the old man, with his deeds, they begin to walk in newness of life. Evangelical emphasis, right? There's a newness of life there. It's not just, it's not this, it is... Uh, ex opera operato the the in the thing administered he there is a newness of life but he's connecting it to actually living out that newness of life and therefore the expression is competently applied to the holy spirit because he will take up his dwelling not in all men nor in those who are flesh but in those whose land has been renewed lastly for this reason was the grace and revelation of the holy spirit bestowed by the imposition of the apostles hands after baptism um, so again, there is, there is, um, this distinction of baptism and reception of the Holy Spirit that origin is, is, uh, I guess, um, that we can infer from his writings. All right. And then we get to Cyprian and we have much more detailed description. And I think this is really great. He says, it is of little consequence to lay hands on them so that they may receive the Holy Spirit unless they receive also the baptism of the church. For they can be fully sanctified and be sons of God only when they are born of each sacrament. For it is written, unless a man is born again of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We find this also in the Acts of the Apostles. 
So the famous passage in John in, uh, with Jesus and Nicodemus, this being born of water in the spirit, the, the early fathers in the church basically universally applied this to baptism and then the laying on of hands through some ecclesiastical authority. And uh, that's being born of water. That's baptismal regeneration and receiving the Holy Spirit, being born of the Spirit, those, thing, those two things together. And he's making a point about one is entrance into the kingdom and then the other is the strengthening. So this is very old and this is what we have even in, in many of these churches today. Prayer being made for the Samaritans whom uh, Philip baptized and hands being imposed on them, the Holy Spirit was invoked and poured out upon them. The same thing is now done among us too, right? I think that's Acts 8, taking, taking that model of Acts 8. Those who are baptized in the church are brought to the prelates of the church. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what that word there, prelates, is, but he doesn't specify the bishop. Um and by our prayers and by the imposition of hands, they obtain the Holy Spirit and are perfected with the Lord's seal. Be sealed with the Holy Spirit. I think this is great. This is has tons of biblical precedent. Um, this is good. And he says, he, he again makes this distinction between this initiation and strengthening. One is not born by the imposition of hands when he receives the Holy Ghost, but in baptism. So there's a birth in baptism. That so being already born, so he's already born again, he may receive the Holy Spirit even as it happened in the first man, Adam. Now this is great. He, he shows what happens with Adam in, in Adam's creation. For first God formed him, formed him from the dirt, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so he's, there's this correspondence of this creation and then this breath of life. For the spirit cannot be received unless he who receives first have an existence. <laughs> but as the birth of Christians is in baptism, while the generation and sanctification of baptism are with the spouse of Christ alone, who is able spiritually to conceive and to bear sons to God, where and of whom and to whom is he born, who is not a son of the church, so as that he should have God as his father before he has had the church for his mother. So that's uh, in other places rephrased as you can't have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. Um, and he's talking about this being born in the church through baptism and then being strengthened uh, by God through the Holy Spirit. Um, in I guess we could call it confirmation, though he doesn't um, say that here. I don't find much to object to here. I don't find anything to object to here. I think this is great. Uh, it's just my conception would be greater than simply Rome in the East. It would be, we, we would find manifestations of this in evangelical and charismatic realms as well. All right, I'm going to read a, a quote here from Augustine. It's a lengthy quote, but, and, and it's not talking about confirmation. It's talking about receiving heretics uh, um, Donatus back into the church. Um, I, th I think it's Donatus, but so, but this is really good. He does give us some helpful things here, but when it is said that the Holy spirit is given by the imposition of hands in the Catholic church only, when he says Catholic church, he, he doesn't mean Pope Francis's church. He means the fullness of the church who believe in, uh, the, uh, Nicene Creed. They are, there's not Christological um, heresies going on there, and there is a consensus among 
uh, most of the church, and really he, he's talking about the faithful church in its entirety. The Holy Spirit is given by the imposition of hands in the Catholic Church only. I suppose that our ancestors meant that we we should understand thereby what the Apostle says, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us, Romans 5.5. 5. Uh, again, so the, the Catholic Church only. I would affirm that as well, that the Holy Spirit is given through the instrumentality of the Catholic Church, but I would just say that that is through... Um, the church in its entirety, which is faithful and orthodox, not the Roman Catholic Church only. <clears throat> For this is that very love which is wanting in all who are cut off from the communion of the Catholic Church. And for lack of this, though they speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though they understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though they have the gift of prophecy and all faith so that they could remove mountains, and though they bestow all their goods to feed the poor, and though they give their bodies to be burned, it profits them nothing. He's quoting 1 Corinthians 13, and he's going to go on. He, he's making a point about the fullness of the Spirit being manifested in love. This is a super Augustinian thing to do. And um, so he goes on. But those are wanting in God's love who do not care for the unity of the church. And consequently... We are right in understanding that the Holy Spirit may be said not to be received except in the Catholic Church. For the Holy Spirit is not only given by the laying on of hands amid the testimony of temporal sensible miracles, as he has given in former days to be the credentials of a rudimentary faith and for the extension of the first beginnings of the Church. For who expects in these days that those on whom hands are laid that they may receive the Holy Spirit should immediately begin to speak with tongues? So he is making this something of a cessationist argument, though in other places he's not, he's not a full-blown cessationist. But he is acknowledging, as I would, that there are moments in history where laying on of hands, baptism, is not accompanied by these outward miraculous signs. Or it's, it's not the regular mode of uh, the distribution of the gifts of the Spirit. And so uh, he goes on. But it is understood, oh, real quick, and when he's talking about those lack in love who don't care for the unity of the church, we have in our minds kind of this liberal ecumenical kind of idea that we all just need to come together um, and sing Kumbaya. But there is a sense in which we do, we should desire the unity of the church because Jesus, our high priest, prays for it. He prays that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. So there is... If you don't desire that, there is, I would say, a deficient lack of love in you. And Augustine is making this point that then, therefore, the spirit, the true kind of manifestation of the spirit is not in you. And he's making this point about these separated heretics. And he says, but it is understood that invisibly and imperceptibly on account of the bond of peace, divine love is breathed into their hearts so that they may be able to say, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us, appropriating Paul and Romans. But there are many operations of the Holy Spirit. So he's talking, he's emphasizing love, but then now he starts talking about many operations of the Spirit which the same apostle commemorates in a certain passage at, at such length as he thinks sufficient and then concludes, but all these works that one in the, but all, 
But all these works, that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. It's 1 Corinthians 12. Since then, the sacrament is one thing. So I don't know if he's talking about baptism or the laying on of hands. Probably the laying on of hands. Which even Simon Magus could have. <laughs> and the operation of the spirit is another thing. So he's making this distinction, which is very helpful, that the Spirit is not confined to the sacramental administration. Which is even often found in wicked men, as Saul had the gift of prophecy, which I would absolutely agree. Paul says in another place, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Um, so you can have somebody have the gift of prophecy and be a wicked man. And that operation of the same spirit is a third thing, which only the good can have, as the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. It's quoting 1 Timothy 1 there. Whatever therefore may be received by heretics and schismatics, the charity which covers the multitude of sins is the special gift of Catholic unity and peace. Nor is it found, now this is important, so he's prioritizing love and it's not and in charity. And, and it's, it's, so, it's such a tragedy that this word has been bastardized in our, our time because it, it just does, it's been evacuated of what it really means. Um, true goodness towards neighbor, holiness, righteousness. Um, and then it's been imported with basically eros and sentimentality. <laughs> But that's not how the Bible uses the word love or charity. The old translations usually say charity. In some ways, I think we should probably just start using the word charity again instead of love. Uh, but maybe that's, maybe that's giving up. Maybe we should reappropriate love. But he, this is the, he makes a distinction between the invisible and the visible church here. He says, since not all that are within it, meaning the Catholic church, are of it, as we shall see in the proper place. At any rate, outside the bond that love cannot exist, without which all the other requisites, even if they can be recognized and approved, cannot profit or release from sin. But the laying on of, but the laying on of hands in reconciliation to the church is not, like baptism, incapable of repetition. For what is it more than a prayer offered over a man? So in some ways he's, it appears that he's talking about confirmation and receiving the Holy Spirit and that when those heretics are returned, the hands are laid on them again, but it's, it's an act of reconciliation and prayer over them. It's almost this diminishment of the sacrament, which there's a great North American Anglican article which documents basically the idea of sacraments has been, it, it's, it's not always been two, it's not always been seven, it's been all over the place. The word sacrament just means mystery um, and there's all kinds of ways that you can understand this. And um, so, uh, and it basically toward the late Middle Ages, it gets hammered out to about seven and solidified with the Council of Trent. And then the, the evangelical position is to affirm the two dominical sacraments of uh, the Lord's Supper and, um, and baptism. Although with Luther, uh, he has another one, which I think, I, I think he suggests strongly that absolution might be another one. So the minister pronouncing forgiveness of sins over the people. 
But see, even there, that shows that this idea is, it's shifting. It's, so if someone says the church has always believed in the seven sacraments, uh, no, it's been all over the place. I mean, prior, prior to the Reformation, and then even, even at the Reformation, it wasn't totally set. So John Calvin, in his Institutes, he takes, I mean, it's with what he's presented with at the time, he's pushing really strongly against the church, which the Roman church has, has in its worst moments, is just filled with kind of megalomania and arrogance and hubris, and they, we are right and everybody else is wrong, and it's, it's misplaced dogma. That's kind of their perennial sin. And they're saying that the oil that's used in confirmation has to be has to be oil, and in some ways it's it's greater than baptism and and all of these things that are not totally apparent in the New Testament. They're not there in the New Testament. Oil is not used, even though I think there's biblical precedent and the symbolism is is potent, and I think it's lawful for us to use these in kind of these ritualized ceremonies. And the Holy Spirit can use those. But the New Testament doesn't give us this example. And so Calvin, in line with the Reformed, uh, kind of like, uh, uh, almost like this regulative principle, it's like this isn't, we don't see this in, in the New Testament. But he does want to retain the right in some ways. The passage of, of Calvin is far too long, but it's in his Institutes. And um, he makes use of kind of the cessationist observation as well, that that um, the bishops of his time do not manifest the same miracles that the apostles manifested when they laid their hands on them, um, which I think could be problematic. It's a problematic argument because there are instances where this does happen now. Um, but anyway, he makes great use of this, but he doesn't say to get rid of the the right at all, but he kind of morphs it into a... Um, uh, what it is in a lot of churches in the West, what it has manifested into is kind of this catechetical exercise of as as things progressed in the West and more people were being baptized, the bishop, it took longer and longer for the bishop to confirm um, baptized infants, children of believers. And so, and so baptism and confirmation became set more separated, more separated. And so confirmation became almost this um, uh, adolescent rite of passage, like a Christian bar mitzvah almost, where you um, articulate the faith. You had to learn the Ten Commandments or you had to recite the Apostles' Creed or something like this, and then you would be confirmed. Um, and it's and, and, and Calvin kind of wants something like this. And, he, and it's, it's out of a good... It's good It's well intended. He wants to appropriate this for this catechetical purpose, so that people will take their uh, role as parents seriously to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I think th this is really the Baptist impulse, right? The Baptists want their children to confess the faith, and I mean, obviously, there's a whole theology behind that, but. It, it, it's 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 well intentioned and sincere. They want their children to manifest belief, to confess the faith, as do Pado Baptists. Uh, every everybody wants their children to confess with their mouth and believe and to know the faith well. Well, you have that in confirmation, even before there were Baptists. Um, you, you you have that 
um, idea there. It was just associated with the laying on of hands rather than with baptism. So they were already in the church, but then they received this kind of special strengthening of the Holy Spirit to, to fight the Christian life uh, in a more fuller uh, sense. So that's what Calvin uh, argues for. And then I wanted to read this thing from Samuel Saywell, who's an Anglican priest, uh, it, during the time of the Reformation, or maybe a little bit later. Uh, I'm not quite sure when he's writing, but um, he says this. But some will be ready to say, did they not receive the Holy Ghost before at their baptism when they were born of water and the Spirit? Again, John 3, 5. And had been baptized by one spirit into one body, quoting Paul. And tis at baptism we are regenerated and renewed by the Holy Ghost as the same apostle teach. And he quotes Titus 3, the lover of regeneration. How then are we to expect to receive the spirit again at confirmation? This is a great question. Or by the laying on of the bishop's hands? I answer, and I think this is, this is money, a portion of God's Spirit may be given to us many ways and in several ordinances and for diverse ends and purposes. To me, I think that this really kind of, uh, I think that that's the best way to describe it. I think that that's what makes sense of all the biblical data. The Holy Spirit is given in all kinds of diverse ways through several different ordinances. I would say the Spirit strengthens us through sermons and homilies. We hear the word and the Spirit strengthens us. The Spirit strengthens us through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That um, In many rites, we, we, we ask the Holy Spirit to consecrate the elements, and, and Christ feeds us spiritually through, with his body um, in, in the Eucharist. And, and so we can say that with the laying on of hands. We can say it with baptism. We can say it, in, and there's all other kinds of ways that aren't even ecclesiastical in nature that the Holy Spirit can use to strengthen you. Uh, in, their, in, in the charismatic tradition, there's, there, there's an acknowledgement of even just kind of direct filling of the Holy Spirit, exercising of the spiritual gifts. And um, so I think all of these things are present and good. Um, but again, my main issue, I don't think that the East or Rome monopolizes these things even if they might have some kind of special covenantal connection due to their apostolic succession. Um, but they'll be judged more severely because of their unfaithfulness. Um, you know, the rampant, rampant sexual immorality, and I would say just departing from the apostolic faith, particularly with their um, sophistry on divorce and remarriage. Um, Abraham has promised the gates of his enemies, and that promise is reaffirmed with faithfulness to the covenant, as we see in Deuteronomy 28, we are sons of Abraham. Eastern Orthodox churches have failed to take the gates of their enemies. In fact, they have become the tail, uh, while Islam and communism and all other sorts of, uh, uh, all, all other kinds of enemies have taken over them. And now we're being taken over because we've been unfaithful, uh, particularly with the wives of our youth as, as uh, Malachi would say. Uh, one other thing, the, the last thing I'll say is um, I would side with the Eastern Orthodox position of if we are going to make this kind of a sacramental rite based on the Bible, um, having, I, I believe that we should baptize our children, and that means our infants, um, 
because the promise is to us and to them, and they are part of the church, so we baptize them, and they trust in Jesus. Um, uh, children of believers trust in Jesus. Uh, David trusted in Jesus. Um, John the Baptist trusted in Jesus. It's There is such a thing as trusting in the Lord and this kind of seed faith. So we baptize them, and then I would say we can confirm them, lay, lay our hands on them, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to um, strengthen them. And the reason why I would want to do this all at the same time is because I think that they should also be partaking of uh, the bread and the wine because they're part of the church. Uh, I think there's this kind of de facto excommunication of children when you um, make them wait to partake of uh, the elements. And the East goes insanely, I think, overboard. I'm fine with it. Um, I wouldn't do it. I would, it, once the child is old enough to know that they are being, um, they know what's going on. And, and if they see the bread plate go past them, or they see everybody going up to receive communion at the altar, but they can't do it, that says something to them. This is not for you. And I think that that's wrong. <laughs> we're, we are one body, we're one uh, bread, and uh, the discernment issue is we are to discern, and as they grow, we would explain that to them. You need to discern, you need to be self-reflective, um, but I think we're actually failing to discern the body when we remove them from communion. And so I would, I would want baptism and, and confirmation to be um, together, if we are even going to do any kind of confirmation uh, right. So that is, uh, it's, it's a big mess in history, particularly after the Reformation. Uh, I don't have any, I don't have any objections to the East and Rome practicing these things. I think they're great, um, but I think it's bigger. I'm too Catholic to be Catholic and too Orthodox to be Orthodox. Yeah.